Well, good morning. This morning we want to continue our discussion out of Acts chapter 9, starting with verse 32 through 43. And I've titled this section, Back to the Exploits of Peter. The first 31 verses of Acts 9 focused on the conversion and early development of Saul of Tarsus, who in time became the Apostle Paul, the greatest apologist for the Christian faith, arguably perhaps ever, other than Jesus. The foundation of his apologetics was laid during his time in Damascus. Though Paul grew up, <clears throat> grew into a, a powerful apologist for the way, that's what Christianity was called in the early days, was the way, he was not trusted by his fellow disciples. He was viewed as a betrayer by the Jews. After about 14 years in Damascus, with some trips to Arabia, Jerusalem, Syria, and Sicily, recorded in Acts chapter, or excuse me, in Galatians 1, he returned to Jerusalem to clarify his role in the work of building Jesus' ecclesia. He stayed in Jerusalem and engaged the Hellenistic Jews who had been his friends and cohorts, and now they were his enemies. But he engaged them with his apologetics until they sought to kill him because they couldn't refute what he said. That was their only answer. They, was, they were going to kill him like they had killed Stephen. Some disciples helped him to escape to Caesarea, and then they sent him home to Tarsus, and he spent a season at home I think probably getting refreshed and uh, pre being prepared for the rest of his earthly life. This is an inter interesting picture for all of us. In fulfilling our divinely ordained purpose, sometimes we just need to go home for a season. But going home doesn't mean that we're out of the game. We are still in the game with Christ as long as we're growing and maturing in Christ and there's breath in our body. But going to home so was not the end for Saul. He would return in Acts 11.25. His most profound work was ahead of him, probably, but he didn't know it. He didn't have a clue. He would become the chief protagonist, you know, in the remainder of, of Luke's record of the Acts of the Apostles. And accordingly, he became the chief apologist in the work of laying the foundation for Jesus' ecclesia. That included fulfilling Jesus' mandate to disciple all the ethnic groups, that is, the Gentiles. In the meantime, Luke's record focused on Peter again. In these concluding verses of chapter 9, verses 32 through 43, the Holy Spirit set the stage for a more profound understanding of the Abrahamic promise. The promise blessed a blessing to not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles, the ethnic groups. Note that these words from Abrahamic promise were, that are relevant to the gospel that we have today. Genesis 12, verse 3 says, And all the peoples, that is, all the ethnic groups on earth, will be blessed through you. And in Galatians 3, we know that that blessing is justification by faith in Christ. Peter and the original apostles didn't really understand these aspects of the promise at this time. So when Jesus issued the discipleship mandate recorded in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and then again in Acts 1, 8, his disciples did not really comprehend that the Gentiles, the ethnic groups, would be included in the ecclesia. In other words, though Jesus was a Jew, he would be blessed. He would bless all ethnicities, not just Jews. This reality was revealed more clearly in the next chapter. <clears throat> Notwithstanding the salvation of the Ethiopian eunuch recorded in Acts, 10, Acts 8, Acts 10 presents the story of a Roman military officer named Cornelius, who with his friends and family would encounter Jesus, 
through the agency of Peter. And in the process, Peter understood more clearly the inclusivity of the Gentiles in the ecclesia. In time, all the apostles understood that salvation came from the Jews, but was not limited to the Jews. Jesus fulfilled the Abrahamic promise and blessed all peoples on earth. Now I want to read uh, the text here, starting with Acts chapter 9, verse 32, going to verse 43. As Peter was traveling from place to place, he also came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a disciple, um, excuse me, a man named Ananias, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. So all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Notice how this healing happens. Peter recognizes that the healer is Christ. He's not the healer. He's simply the representative of Christ. And now he gives him a command based on the healing power of Christ. In Joppa, verse 36, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. That's the Greek word. Tabitha is the Aramaic word for her name. She was always doing good works and acts of charity. About that time, she became sick and died. After washing her, they placed her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there and sent two men to him who urged him, don't delay in coming with us. Peter got up and went with them. When he arrived, they led him to the upper room upstairs. And all the widows approached him, weeping and showing him the robes and clothes that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. He knelt down, prayed, and turned toward the body and said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and, Peter, and saw Peter and sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her stand up. He called the saints and widows and presented her alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed for some time in Joppa with Simon, a leather tanner. After the martyrdom of Stephen, the followers of Jesus, except for the apostles, were scattered. Though the apostles remained in Jerusalem, Peter and John were sent to support the work of Philip, the food distributor, who was sharing the gospel and performing supernatural signs in Samaria. Peter and John prayed for the new believers to receive the Spirit. So interestingly, at that time, that the Spirit was not imparted through Philip. It took the apostles. They spoke the word of the Lord to the new believers and then returned to Jerusalem. Along the way, they visited many villages in Samaria and shared the gospel. Now, after 14 years, Peter traveled throughout, traveled from Samaria and arrived in Lydda and located about 10 miles from the sea. He found Aeneas, a man paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. So we don't know what, what Peter did between the time he returned to Jerusalem after he helped Philip in Samaria and the time now recorded at the end of Acts chapter 9 where he's in Lydda. We, we just know he, is, he wound up in Lydda at some way. This is about probably about 14 years it's, it's transpired, about the same length of time that Paul was in Damascus. So he gets there, and he finds this man. We don't know how he found this man. 
He declared him healed in the name of Jesus. So it very clearly attributes the healing to Jesus. Peter was, was not the man, not the source of healing. Jesus was the source of healing. He simply commanded him to get up and put things in order, knowing that he was healed. The Greek word translated make your bed, which is a common translation of the word, uh, was meant to meant to order things. For example, this is the same word that's used in the, the triumphal entry of Jesus uh, as a directive to organize the branches and, and blankets that were spread on the ground. And then when Jesus uh, sent his disciples to prepare the upper room, it's the same word, get everything in order. Uh, so Aeneas got up immediately and complied. He put things in order, whatever that meant. Maybe it was making the bed, maybe setting a table, maybe cleaning up the room. We don't know all those details. It's just when when God touches you and transforms you in some way, immediately we were, should respond by putting things in order for the next thing that God wants to do. The healing of Aeneas became widely known in Lydda and in the plains of Sharon. So all who saw his healing turned to the Lord. The word translated all was probably hyperbole here. It probably didn't mean every person. It probably meant a lot of people. We, we frequently, we will use words like all and, and uh, always to suggest a lot, not necessarily every single one. This is hyperbole. It's very acceptable figure of speech to convey an idea. So that's what could be do, used here. This could be all as hyperbole to imply that many in the area uh, turn to Jesus as Lord in Christ. The word translated turn to is used metaphorically to intimate turning from unbelief to believing in Jesus as Lord in Christ. One of the purposes of supernatural acts is to promote repentance. That is to change people's thinking about Jesus. Repentance is a starting point for being a Christian and was one of the clearly, critically important things to Jesus. So just hear what Jesus had to say about some towns where he did miracles and they didn't repent. Jesus said this, he proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not repent, Matthew 11, verse 20. News of the healing of Aeneas, Aeneas must have reached Joppa, located about, about 10 miles away from Lydda on the coast, about the same time a prominent local disciple named Tabitha, that's the Aramaic name for gazelle, also known as Dorcas, the Greek name for gazelle, had died. Some disciples in Joppa heard that Peter was in Lydda, so they sent two men to urge him to visit Joppa. Clearly, they were hoping for more supernatural acts, but this time they needed resurrection from the dead. This is a big act. So let me reread now verses 36 through 43. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is also translated Dorcas. She was always doing good works and acts of charity. About that time, she became sick and died. After washing her, they placed her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there and sent two men to him and urged him, don't delay in coming with us. Peter got up and went with them. When he arrived, they led him to the room upstairs. After all the widows approached him, weeping and showing him the robes and clothes that Dorcas had made while she was with them, Peter sent them all out of the room. He knelt down, prayed, and turned toward the body and said, 
Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. He gave her his hand. Interesting how he helped her get up. He gave her his hand and helped her stand up. He called the saints and widows and presented her alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Peter stayed for some time in Joppa with Simon, a leather tanner. Tabitha was a disciple of Jesus given to good works. And the Greek word there is agathos ergon. Agathos ergon refers to works performed with a pure motive. And then he was, she was given to acts of charity, which means acts of mercy. So when you talk about good works, you're talking about works not only with a pure motive, but works that are aligned with God. Because God is good. You see, when you say something's good, you're saying it aligns with God. So a good work is not just something you like. We use good as a slang term today. We talk about the food was good food or the weather. We say it was good weather, meaning we liked it. That's not the way it's used in scripture. The word good meant aligned with God. Jesus made this point very clearly in his interaction with a rich young ruler. You may recall that story in Luke chapter 18, verses 18 and 19. A ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus immediately focuses on the good. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him, no one is good except God alone. So clearly, Jesus did not use good as a slang term. He saw it as a divine attribute. So to describe anything as good means it must align with God. Tabitha had died and perhaps motivated by Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus, which surely they knew about, her fellow disciples sent two men to Peter. It's interesting how we have frequently in scripture that when people are sent on a mission, it's two by two. So two men are sent to Peter, uh, who was about 10 miles away in Lydda, uh, urging him to come without delay. When he arrived, Peter was taken to the upper room. He, he sent everyone out of the room. He knelt down and prayed and turned toward the body. He then issued a command. Now notice he doesn't say in Jesus' name, but clearly he was looking to Jesus because he didn't have the power to do what he's getting ready to do. Only Jesus could. So he issued a command, arise, and she woke up. Peter extended his hand and helped her stand up. Life supernaturally returned to Tabitha, but then Peter helped her get up. This illustrates how God can supernaturally and sovereignly intervene in the affairs of men, but he still uses human agents according to his pleasure. We saw that with, with Paul. When Paul was intercepted by Jesus, Jesus left him in an incomplete state. He was blind, and he had not been uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus sends an Ananias to go take care of what Jesus didn't finish. So Jesus finished his work through a human agent. Well, likewise, you have Peter functioning as God's human agent here. Peter called the saints together, that is the disciples and the widows, and presented Dorcas alive to them. Can't you imagine that? I present to you Dorcas, resurrected from the dead by the power of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not explicitly in the text, but I, I would gather it's something like that is pro probably what he meant when he said he presented her alive to them. The resurrection of Dorcas became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. As with the healing of Aeneas, the resurrection of Tabitha illustrates that one of the major objectives of supernatural acts 
is to encourage repentance. Repentance means to change your thinking. You see, these people did not understand that Jesus was Lord and Christ. And so to build his ecclesia, Jesus needs people who understand that. So he is looking for people and he is touching people. And the way you know that he's touched someone is they express faith. They can't express faith unless they've been touched by the power of the Holy Spirit. So these people repented. They changed their thinking. That means the Holy Spirit touched them through this supernatural act to give them the grace to be able to express faith in Christ. This is what God and Christ are looking for when supernatural acts are performed. Peter stayed for some time in Joppa with a leather tanner named Simon. To a Jew who valued ritual purity like Peter would, and most Jews of Peter's day, this may seem strange that Peter stayed with a person whose occupation involved dealing with dead animals who were regarded as unclean. You, how do you stay pure when you're dealing that with that which is unclean? Well, you don't. But the Holy Spirit was setting something up here. He was preparing Peter for his encounter with a Gentile, Cornelius, that would be the focus of Acts 10. You see, Peter and the apostles at this point apparently did not really understand the discipleship mandate to go to all the ethnicities of the world and to make disciples. He was still trying to go primarily to the Jews. Now, Jesus's mandate was to go to all ethnicities. And so I'm sure Peter could give mental assent to that, but it really wasn't deep within him. And so Acts chapter 10 is going to be an opportunity for this to go deep within him. And so he's being set up here by staying with a man that the Jews would normally never stay with because he's going to have to change some of his thinking about God and how God works. And this is the predicate for what's going to happen in the next chapter. So let me take, make a theological point here. Uh, our supernatural acts for today. That is a big debate today. Today, God does God intervene in the affairs of men as he did in biblical times? There are two basic views here. They're called cessationism and continuationism. The former holds that supernatural acts were normative during the apostolic period of the first century and ceased after the original apostles died. The latter view maintains that God continues to interact with his creation supernaturally. The cessationist view holds that the purpose of the supernatural was to confirm the message of Jesus and his, excuse me, confirm the messenger who is Jesus and his message. This is supported by texts text such as Acts 2.22 and Hebrews 2.3 and 4. So Acts 2.22 says that, the, that Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him. So that testified to Jesus, the messenger. And then Hebrews 2, 3 and 4 talks about the message. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's the message. This message had its beginning when it was spoken by the Lord. And it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders and various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit. So these supernatural actions are testifying to the messenger and the message. 
Jesus clearly saw miracles as a tool to provoke repentance. When repentance didn't happen, he denounced the places and presumably the people where these miracles were done. We, I quoted to you Matthew eleven twenty before. So just repeating it quickly again, then when Jesus proceeded to denounce the towns where he, where he most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Cessationists acknowledged the role of the Holy Spirit to regenerate, indwell, and illuminate. And obviously the illumination means to illuminate so that we believe. So they acknowledge that. That is the role of the Holy Spirit. That's always been the role of the Holy Spirit. There's never been a question about that. But other than this, they contend that since the apostolic age, there was not a need for any continued supernatural intervention. So their view is a view of inference. Now, continuationists would certainly agree that the Holy Spirit is active today through regeneration and dwelling and illumination, but would disagree that the Holy Spirit has ceased to perform other supernatural acts. They appeal to texts like Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. However, there's no clear unequivocal text to support continuationism, just like there's no clear unequivocal text to support cessationism. Both views rely on inference. So which view is right? It seems difficult to distinguish. It looks like it's just personal preference, whether you want to be a continuationist or you want to be a cessationist, and different streams have just taken different positions without any real clear preponderance of the evidence to support them. So one could argue that maybe the preponderance of evidence or the greater burden should be on the cessationists because they're trying to limit God in some way. Well, perhaps that's true. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It doesn't seem like that's a conclusive way to approach it. But regardless of what view you take, the biblical record is clear. There are supernatural acts that God has done historically, both in the Old and New Testament. And you have to have a way, whatever view you take, to consider all of these acts and understand these acts. So, for example, the Apostle Paul noted that instead of seeking Christ, the Jews sought signs and wonders. And they saw some. Jesus also, speaking of the Jews, stated, unless the people see signs and wonders, will you not believe? John 4, 48. He also noted there would be many false messiahs and prophets who would perform supernatural acts, which means supernatural acts can be deceptive. Notice Matthew 24, verse 24. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform many great wonders and signs to lead astray if possible, even the elect. That's a very, very uh, convicting verse. Paul repeated Jesus's warning about the risk of deception from supernatural activity. In other words, there can be some deceptive supernatural activity. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders. If you can't recognize the false signs and wonders, you'll be deceived by them. This doesn't mean there won't be true signs and wonders. There will be true signs and wonders. Throughout scripture, you see this. During the early days of the formation of the ecclesia, supernatural acts were very normative. Acts 4.30, signs and wonders were performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Acts 5.12, many signs and wonders were done among the people through the hands of the apostles. Acts 14.3, 
So they stayed, referring to Paul and Silas, or Paul and Barnabas. They stayed there a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord, who testified to the message of his grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. And then Acts 15, 12, the whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles. Finally, the apostle Paul, writing to the baby church at Corinth, noted the unfailing endurance of supernatural activity during the first century, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of an apostle were performed with unfailing endurance among you, including many signs and wonders and miracles. So the conclusion of the matter is difficult. You know, which is the correct view? It's hard to know for certain. But both views have got to be clear. At the very, le at the very least, the supernatural activity continues in the form of regeneration, sanctification, and illumination. That is what the work the Spirit has always done. And there appears to be opportunity for the Spirit to do more than that. And I think because of that, it makes it difficult for me to hold on to a cessationist view because it just, it seems to be so limiting. The continuationist view does not give a blank check to the signs and wonders movement of today. It's simply an openness to true signs and wonders with a sensitivity that we can be deceived by false signs and wonders. So I think to me, that is the preferred view and I hold on to that loosely because I understand that it may not be correct in the end. We may be missing something here. But I think for now, I think that to me is the wisest, wisest position to take. All right, so let me give you a word of application. So during the 8th century, excuse me, the 18th century, the French embarked on a cultural experiment. Could they develop a culture with no connection to God, specifically the God of the Bible? This period was called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment impacted not only France, but also Europe and the USA. The Great Awakening emerged in Europe and spread to the USA. The movement began with a vision for discipleship, but in time, under the leadership of John Wesley, morphed into simply an evangelistic campaign. The clash of the atheistic French Enlightenment and the theistic Great Awakening led to the development of a new worldview that became known as deism. Through deism, theists were seeking to find common ground with atheists. Therefore, deism posited that God created the universe and then disconnected from it. Consequently, God was no longer engaged with his creation. This meant that after creation and biblical times, there was no supernatural activity at least to the deist. There, were many, there are many deists today. It can be found in popular expression of the gospel known as MTD, and an acronym for moralistic therapeutic deism. Early in the 21st century, sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Lindquist uh, empirically researched the gospel held by the typical American teenagers. They reported that the popular American gospel could be summarized as MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic means that the gospel contains some sense of right and wrong. Therapeutic intimated that they wanted to feel better, and deism meant that, that they viewed God as distant and therefore uninvolved in their lives. So a priori, young people today are inclined to reject the possibility of supernatural intervention in their lives. 
Once one rejects the possibility of supernatural activities such as miracles, signs, and wonders, it's easy to question the work of the Holy Spirit, even to regenerate, to sanctify, and to illuminate. What follows is, is the a priori rejection of supernatural activity as an explanation for anything. However, the Christian life without divine engagement is not Christian. The biblical record is rife with divine intervention into the affairs of men, starting with creation itself. And the pinnacle of divine intervention is the incarnation of Jesus, the only theanthropic person who is the protagonist of the meta narrative and the heart of the true gospel. The MTD gospel does not even make room for Jesus, who is the author and sustainer and perfecter of the Christian faith. Living as a Christian is a lifestyle of dwelling with God. Implicit in this reality is supernatural activity, the daily illumination of truth and the empowerment and sanctification that we enjoy through the Holy Spirit and the ability to make right choices. This all comes from God. Christianity can be characterized as a supernatural lifestyle. This doesn't mean that every Christian will necessarily raise the dead and heal the crippled as the Apostle Paul did or the Apostle Peter did. But every Christian is empowered through regeneration, sanctification, and illumination of the Holy Spirit to live a life with God that can be lived no other way. Christians must be vigilant to protect the veracity of the gospel. The MTD gospel is no gospel. There's nothing good about that gospel. The true gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, is the true gospel. It is a gospel of hope. And it includes a supernatural aspect of reality. We must resist the temptation to accommodate the culture, and a priori, which a priori rejects the supernatural intervention of God into the affairs of men, and say no to that, and embrace the truth of the Word of God, that God is supernatural, and he works today, every day in the lives of every believer supernaturally, and he occasionally does other things as well, that defy our imagination, but bless us richly. So we're grateful that we have a God who is personal, who is engaged, who cares about us, who guides us and directs us into alignment with his will and his ways, and who blesses us with eternal life. So may God give us grace to live as true Christians in Jesus' name. Amen.